0: It's beautiful, I love that we get to sing, and love so in Christ for hope and life and death, I love beginnings. Oh, this is well <laughs> Alright, well hello everybody, um, well, we have a ton of people here, Woo! okay, we're packed up, well, if you're new here, my name is Christian. Uh, I'm one of four teachers here at Salt. And if you've been around for a while, uh, you'll know that we've been going through the book of Job. And tonight, uh, by the time we're done, we'll be just about at the halfway point in the book. Uh, Job has 42 chapters. By the end of time, we'll be leaving off at chapter 20. And so we'll be just about at the halfway point. I think we have fewer weeks ahead of us than we do behind in terms of teaching. Uh, but in terms of chapters, we're just about half time. Well, Jeff took us through uh, Job 15 through 17 last week and showed us that as Job uh, as Job's suffering continues, Eliphaz responds to him, accusing him of sinning against God and turning his back on him. And Job is really feeling the weight of his despair and the lack of support from his great friends. Uh, They're really just adding to his troubles, and his hope is dissipated. Job needs a renewal of hope, and his desire is for an advocate, for someone who will plead his case before God and vindicate him. Now, fortunately for us, as as, uh, Jeff reminded us, that advocate is Christ. As believers, we have an advocate, someone who will plead our case to mediate us with the Lord. Jesus stands before the Lord advocating for us. He is one who makes us righteous, even when the world, Satan, friends, family condemn us wrongly. The Word of God and His promises found within are the source of hope, of the hope that we need, a hope that endures any circumstance or suffering. And there is a moral certainty in this hope because it is based on the intangible character of and promises of God. To endure suffering, we must remind ourselves of and cling to this great living hope. That's what we went through last week. And so this week we're going to be picking up right where Jeff left off. And I'll be honest, not since I did my testimony, since have have I been so petrified to approach the passage. I'll be totally on the side and terrified right now. Um, not because of the public speaking, this really doesn't bother me all that much. But we're going to be talking about some difficult things tonight. So go ahead and open up to Job chapter 18. And while you do, I'm going to pray once again. I want to thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for such a packed kind house. Of mm-hmm. Above all, Lord, we pray that they would see Christ, that they would know you more fully, that they would worship you and love you, no matter, no matter how offensive the, the gospel can be. Job chapter 18. We're just gonna jump right in. Verse one. Then build out the two height answered and said, How long until you put an end to your words. Show understanding and then we can talk. Why are we regarded as beasts, as dense in your eyes? Well, if you remember, there are three speakers other than Job, and they take turns. They all speak in turn, and they, they speak in rounds. Eliphaz speaks to Bildad and Zophar, and they do that in rounds, they do it three times. And by the third time, Eliphaz can speak again. Bildad is getting a little bit worn out. He really just speaks for about six verses or something. And Zilfart uh, just doesn't need to try. go <laughs> him down all the way. But Bildad begins his second diatribe, his second speech, in the second round of speeches, in exasperation. Job, you know, would you just shut up? Like, you don't even know what you're talking about, right? You're actually calling us. The innocent ones, the non-sufferers, dumb as rocks. When Bildad says, Why are we regarding as beasts in your eyes? This is a reference to his and his two friends wisdom. It's a reference to their counsel. It's a reference specifically to what Job says of them in chapter twelve, verses seven through nine, It says, But now ask the beasts and let them instruct you, and the birds of the sky and let them tell you, or muse to the earth and let it instruct you. And let the pictures of the sea recount it to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of Yahweh has done this? Translation, look at creation. Look at the dirt. Literally, the dirt has better theology than you guys. He's on this. And after all that's been said, right, this is the second round. Isn't it funny what, what Bildad, isn't it that funny that Bildad starts with this? i you what he, begins with. he can get into He's had prep time, right? To get a conversation going. He's had time since the last time we spoke to prepare, to think. And the best possible thing that he could come up with, the greatest course of action, is the finest counsel to bring to his ailing, dying friend is pride. Or you did not just call me dead, right? How dare you, Job? In fact, you're the one who needs to get understanding. You go get wisdom, and once you rise to theological equality with me, then we can check. And in a cutting exhortation, calling for Job's maturity, build Enthus himself to be immature. It continues on to verse 4. So you who tear yourself in your anger, for your sake is the earth to be forsaken, or the rock to be moved from its place? This is a direct response to what we read last week in 16, verse 9. What Job says of God, he says of God, His anger has torn me and hunted me down. He has massed at me with his teeth. My adversary sharpens his eyes to look at me. In Job 16 verse 9, Job says of God that God tears him in his anger. In 18 verse 4, Philad says to Job, "No, you tear yourself in your own anger. This is self-inflicted. You sin, and it's only natural that you should be suffering because of it. But you think that the pain is wrong. Should the entire natural order just be flipped upside down for you? Who do you think you are?" Should the whole planet be overturned for you, as he says in verse 4? And so Bildad begins to more fully attack Job. Verses 5 through 21 are really just a long explanation of verse 4 that Job tears himself in his own anger. And here, Bildad changes. From a direct rebuke of Job to an indirect rebuke, from speaking specifically about Job to speaking about a group he believes Job belongs to. Notice that this: from you in verse four to his in verse five, speaking of the wicked. And he isn't just randomly talking about the wicked; he's saying, "Hey, this is, these are the kind of things that happen to the wicked, and you're one of them." So what does he say? Bill, then, is is building an argument. What are the kinds of things that happen to the wicked? And we're just going to sort of blaze through these. Our main focus tonight is in chapter 19. So I'm just going to pull out some verses for us to look at and and get sort of an idea of what's happening here. Verse 5. Indeed, the light of the wicked goes out, and the flame of his fire gives no light. 7. His vigorous stride is shortened, or his life is short. Continuing to, and the dumb counsel brings him down, for he is thrown into the net by his own feet, The he steps on the netting. His pain is self-inflicted. 17. Memory of him perishes from the earth, and he has no name abroad. Nobody remembers him. He is neither offspring nor posterity among his people, nor any survivor where he sober. He is alone. Finally, the capsule 21. Surely such are the dwellings of the unjust, and this is the place of him who does not know God. He is unsaved. For so will bad things. And this is this is really ironic, right? I mean, this is almost comical. Like, Bill, that is literally so blind that he thinks the wisest, holiest, most mature man on the planet isn't even safe. He's not even in the door. This a fool of fools thinking him more mature than the most mature man. that has shown himself to be self-righteous, self-deceived, and self-concerned. He often showed no counsel. Basically, all he says is, Job, you're wicked because the kind of things that have happened to you are sort of like the things that happen to wicked people. That's his argument. Really, just a crushing intellect, but that is. Then you've got to wonder, like, what would the apostles have to say if somebody brought this to them? What would the church of martyrs have to say? Oh, well, you must be evil. You must be wicked because you're being persecuted. That's the plan of that part. I wonder what Jesus would have to say. But build out the whole point, the whole point of this entire chapter, is that this is Job's fault. All the bad things happening to Job are because of his sin. Bad things only happen to bad people. Ah, Karma. Hildad has indicted Job as the cause of his own pain. And so, of course, Job responds in chapter 19. And Job answered and said, How long will you torment my soul and crush me with words? These ten times you have dishonored me. You're not ashamed that you wrong me. Even if I have truly erred, my error logic with me. If truly you magnify yourselves against me and argue my disgrace to me, know then that God has wronged me and has closed his net around me. For the first time I build that Bill Debs speaks, chapter 8. He begins by saying, How long will you say these things? Second time he speaks in chapter 18, he begins by saying, How long until you put an end to your words? And so finally, Job is just fed up and he it on. How long will you torment my soul and crush me with words? How long until I stop speaking? How long will you torture me? Job says, You're not even ashamed. You don't even realize, and this isn't even, this isn't just about Bildad, right? Look at verse 5. You magnify yourselves, not yourself. It's plural. This is about all three of them. Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar are blind not only to Job's righteousness, but also their own sin in their epic failure in counseling. from verse six through 22, Job indicts God. In chapter 18, Bill indicts Job. Earlier in 19, Job indicts his friends, and now Job indicts God. Job says, hey, friends, you keep tormenting me, telling me that this is my fault, it's not. It's God's fault. Now he says in verse 6, know then that God has wronged me and has closed his net around me. And then Job just starts to rant, he starts to vent about all the ways that God has wronged him. Verse 7, Behold, I cry violence, but I get no answer. I shout for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. He has put darkness on my paths. He has stripped my honor from me and removed the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. He has uprooted my hope like a tree. He has also tingled his anger against me and turned me as his adversary. His troops come together and build up their way against me. They camp around my tent. He has removed my brothers far from me, and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed, and my familiar friends have forgotten me. Those who sojourn in my house and my mates have found me a stranger. I'm a foreigner in that sight. I call to my servant, but he does not answer. I have to implore him with my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife, and I am loathsome to my brothers. Even young children abhor me. And those I love, excuse me, all the men of my council abhor me. And those I love have turned against me. My bone clings to my skin, and my flesh has escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Hitting me, hitting me. O oh, you my friends, for the hand of God has split me. Why do you persecute me as God does? I'm satisfied with my flesh. So really just bursts out and he says, God has ruined my life. And all this really boils down to two phrases from verse 6 and 7. And this is our focus. God has wronged me. There is no justice. This is where we are going to spend most of our time. Both chapters 18 and 19 are about why Job is suffering. In chapter 18, Bildad says you're suffering because you are unjust. But in 19, Job says I'm suffering because God is unjust. do with We know that God doesn't count Job as an enemy, but in fact his closest follower. We know that God did not allow for Job's suffering because he was angry about a particular sin. But we also know that God is the ultimate cause of Job's <laughs> He brought Job to Satan. He said, this far you may hurt him and no further. He brought Job to Satan a second time. And said, further you may go, but no more than that. So how do we deal with this? How can God allow for this? In terms of suffering, Job is the most unqualified man alive. And this is, this is a big question of Christianity, right? This is the question of questions. The question that undoes faith. The question that destroys belief. Satan's choice arrow, the one with the fiercest flame, is sharpest fear. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? And we kind of danced around this all throughout our study in Job, but today we're going to face the head on. Why do bad things happen to good people? Let me let me first mistake say I always find it a little bit funny, though, no, it's a serious topic. Although this is looked at as the hardest theological question for our faith to cope with, to be totally honest, I really don't think it do is. I don't think that this is the most difficult question for Christianity. Intellectually, I don't think it is the hardest for us to deal with. Because we're be better at it. However, emotionally, it is. Emotionally, it's about as hard as it gets. Warren Wiersbeck has famously said, truth without love is brutality, but love without truth is hypocrisy. So then as I show you all the answer to this question of the way to end it biblically, let me just sort of prepare you a little bit to the ones here who struggle with formatting your theology to accommodate your emotions, to the ones who never want a God who ever offends your sensibilities, you cannot be a hypocrite. Loving God means loving the right God and believing what He says about Himself, even when it's uncomfortable. And to the one here, like me, especially up here, who struggles with being kind in the way you present their theology, we cannot beat groups. Right theology is not a stick for you to beat people with, even if you are right. We must speak the truth, and we must do it the most. And then with tender hearts and with prepared minds, why don't we start out by dealing with some bad answers to the question? And there are a number of bad answers to this question. I just want us to focus on one for a moment. Why do bad things happen to good people? The bad answer goes like this because God is not sovereign over evil. God has no causal relationship with evil, he merely reacts to it. God is the great card player. Always able to make a winning play out of a bad hand. We can be known. We can't. We can't do that. We can't violate the word that way. We can't bend our theology proper around our homardiology and our sufferology. What the heck does that mean? We can't bend what we think about God around what we think about sin and suffering. So let me just say this before we move on. You guys all have, have taken what we've had to say so well. I mean, like bulletproof, all inside. It's been remarkable. I was talking with Jared earlier this week, and we were just commemorating over the work that God's doing. And how well everybody's taken the difficult things that we've been talking about to the point where, well, as I was preparing, I was forgetting just how much damage I can do if I don't do this well. So I realize what we're going to be talking about tonight is, amongst all of what we have talked about, probably the hardest. I realized that people land in different places on so this. This is difficult. This is the hardest there is. I'm just trying to be faithful to what I have in God's Word. So what does the Bible have to say to this bad answer? God has no. God is not sovereign over evil. The Bible says verbatim. God creates. Evil. And hold on to that person. It's very dangerous territory. God creates calamity. Isaiah 45, through 7. I am the Lord and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things outside safety. That is an uncomfortable verse everywhere was I don't like it any more than you do. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from life. And Exodus 4, 11. And Yahweh said to him, who has made man's mouth, or who makes him mute? or deaf, or seeing, or blind, is it not I, Yahweh. Amnets 3.6b, if a calamity happens in the city, that's not out, Yahweh God. In Psalm 105.16 it says God causes famine, in 2 Kings 17.25 He sends lions to kill people. Please, I remind you of what happened with the flood. Or Genesis 3, where God curses all creation and says that he will multiply our pain. Finally, Lamentations 3, 37 to 38. Who is there who speaks, and it happens unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good go forth? And these are the difficult verses. Notice the question is even worse now, right? Originally, we just knew that evil existed. But now Isaiah is telling us that God creates it. It was, Why do bad things happen to good people? Now it's, Why does God make bad things happen to good people? And suddenly the question is harder. And be careful here, be careful. Yes, it's such a say that He creates. And by that, being specific creates calamity, natural evil, as it's called. But it never says that God commits evil, moral evil. Job understands the former, but he is rebuked for insinuating the denial of the latter. He is rebuked for insinuating that God sins. At the end of the book, in Job chapter 40, verse 8, God says to Job, Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? 1 John 3, 5, And you know that he was manifested in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin? God never commits sin. God cannot sin. God is righteous, he is good, he is loving, he is just. Hold on to that last one. But how then, how can God create evil without being evil himself? Is what we call theodicy, I'll teach you a new word. Theodicy. Theos, God, dictating to justify. What justifies God? How is he still just? What vindicates really him? And let's make this personal, because it already is, right? We've all been okay. What makes it okay for God to hurt you? How can he be good and just? Is she responsible for every moment of pain ever felt by anyone ever? The answer is... Evil. Moral evil. Our moral evil. What explains calamity, what explains natural evil, moral evil, explains it. Job is right. There is no particular sin which God is punishing him for. God is not punishing Job for a particular sin that he had done beforehand that God got angry about. But God has vindicated in ordaining Job's suffering by the fact that Job has earned for himself far more suffering than he is enduring. We ask... Why do bad things happen to good people, and frankly, the scriptures don't recognize that as well a valid category. Romans 3.10 through 12, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. There is none who does good, there is not even one. God owe us anything. And we have to say absolutely. God owes us infinite pain for all eternity. And this is the naked bad news that the gospel comes to rectify. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, the wages of sin is death But the gracious gift of God is eternal life. Christ is our reward. This is the wage. This is your paycheck. We I mean, work for this. As Ben rightly said, people go to hell sweating. It takes effort. See, so we asked the wrong question? And why do bad things happen to good people? The question is, how can an all-good, all-powerful, all-knowing God look at me as I press the thorns into His skull and pound the nails through His wrist and say, crucify Him, crucify Him, crucify Him, and say, that's the one I want, that's the one I love, crucify me for Him. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? How can he love me? I'm not worth it. It's not a fair trade. He got my sin, I got eternal life. Says there is no justice. And we need to ask the question too, God, how are you just? But not because of our pain. Because of our culture. God has given us years of pleasure when in fact all we've earned from Him is eternity. And I'm not trying to press you. Hmm. Knowledge of your sins never drive you Further into yourself. I'm trying kind of to get you to worship. We should not dive into ourselves when we become aware of ourselves. Rather, we should ascend in awe of the God who is revealed more merciful the more we understand our own sinfulness. How great a Savior if He died for a sinner like me. It is not as John Newton puts it in the greatest hymn ever written, the Nation Grace. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. It was the grace of God that I even came to understand my sinfulness before a righteous judge. But it was grace once again that quelled my fear, for it is by grace that I am saved. For every thought you have of the wrath, you rightly deserve being ten thousand of the Savior who drank it down for you. Which brings us to the end of the chapter. In verse 23, Job continues, Oh, that my words were written, Oh, that they were in in a book that with an iron silas and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. Absolutely, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will rise up over the dust of this world, even after my sin is destroyed. Yet from my flesh I shall behold God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart, faint. Within me. If you say, how shall we persecute him, and the root of the matter is found in him, then be afraid of the sword to yourselves. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is judgment. Phil desires his life story to be recorded. And he knows that he is a redeemer, a vindicator, someone to plead his case. And that there is, in fact, a judgment. And oh, the irony, right? If only he knew. Not just that his words would be bound in a book, but they would be bound in the book as its first entry. If only he knew that there wasn't just a Redeemer for him, but for all. And that he was the very one whom Job was calling his adversary. In this here takes us to be the answer to our question. Why do bad things happen to good people? And it's true. The question is flawed. There are no good people. But that's not the answer. doesn't answer to the question. What is the most direct? What is the most accurate? What is the most honest answer we can give to this question? So we can attack it from different angles. We can say, well, there are no good people. We can flip the question and say, well, really the question is why do good things happen to bad people? Or maybe you're more intellectual and and you take a philosophical approach. Well, calling some people good presupposes a standard by which you can differentiate good people and bad people. And that really proves to God that's often denied by the person asking the question. And these are all valid approaches, but they don't answer the question: Why do bad things happen to good people? And the answer is four little words. little words, and Satan's total stereo is extinguished. Poor little words, and his sharpest fear is not dulled but hurled back at him and to restrain. Poor little words, and the question of questions evaporates. Why do bad things happen to good people? Save your soul. I don't know if it was Archie Sproul or John MacArthur or somebody else. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, that only ever happened once. and he a volunteer. The Bible answers this explicitly. We just don't think of the verse as answering the question. It's the famous verse 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He made Him, when you no sin, good people, to be sin on our behalf, bad things, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him, the wine. The spotless Lamb of God, the sinless Christ, endured more suffering than anyone else ever even could for your salvation. Let me take you a step deeper because this is the gospel by which we are saved. Speak to another new word, this is what we call the double imputation of the cross. You don't usually hear that. What the heck is imputation? It means to ascribe something to somebody, it means to lay the blame on them. And there were two that happened at the cross. At the cross, Jesus has all of our sins imputed to him. The blame for the evil you have committed was laid on Christ himself, and therefore God justly punishes him as if he were the worst sinner ever, taking the punishment, the penalty of our sin. Isaiah fifty three four through five. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves became a feeble and stricken. Smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our peace fell upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. But there is another implication.
1: Not only were our sins
0: placed on Jesus' ledger and atoned for. Not only was the slate wiped clean, the cross doesn't just bring us out of the red to break even, but it puts us in the black. Romans 5.19 For as through one man's disobedience, Adam, when many were appointed sinners, we have imputed sin from Adam, through him sin entered the world, even so through the obedience of the one, The many will be appointed righteous. Philippians three nine, not having a righteousness of my own which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God upon faith. Jesus' righteousness, His goodness, His perfection was imputed to us. His righteous life, the righteousness of the God Man Himself was described to us so that we might be rightly raised on the last day and accepted into heaven. This is why bad things happen to good people. This is why bad things happened to the only good person. So that his goodness could be accounted to us. And so that our and be accounted to them. Unless my are are struggling with the emotion of this all, and I'm right there with you, this is unbelievable. I told you, I'm terrible, I'm up there right now. It's are struggling to deal with this emotion. This Maybe this will get a little bit worse before it gets better. The Bible says that God killed Jesus and God crushed Jesus. Isaiah 53.10. But Yahweh was pleased to crush him. Acts 2, 23, speaking of Jesus. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And don't freak out, I'm not a Calvinist. God wrote the verse, not John Calvin. It was God's plan. There is no way around that. The word is in the text. You nailed to a cross by the hand of lawless men and put him to death. Scriptures say that God crushed Jesus. By the way, never denying the fact that he was murdered by lawless men. Human free will and responsibility, and God's absolute sovereignty, are never. Against each other in scriptures. They are always shown to be compatible. Whether we understand it or not, I'll be honest, I don't understand it. Ultimately, though it was God's plan to crush his only son. But here's the emotional rub: And we can be okay with like the sovereignty of God, willing for the sufferings and the death of the only two and one, then can't we be okay with Him ordaining our pain? Are we not worse than Christ? And Jesus' pain presents no issue of faith for us, Exactly actually the basis of our faith, then our pain should present us to the love, right? I'm going to end with this because it really brings it all together, all the way we're talking about. 1 Peter 3 17 through 18 says this. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing good rather than for doing wrong. For Christ also suffered for sins. Once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring you to God, having been put to death in the flesh, and in the Spirit. and so How can we not but save Job? Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? Yahweh no, gave, no, and Yahweh stood before Blessed be the name